Well, Pastor Tom continues to be away on his sabbatical, be returning soon. We're very thankful for the time he's gotten to have away to be refreshed. He's left us in good hands this morning. Dr. Clint Archer is here with us. Uh, we're very excited to have him. If you listen closely, uh, when Dr. Archer speaks, you will notice that he was raised in the South, but not this South. He was raised in South Africa. In fact, was a pastor there for many years. He's a product of the Master's Seminary out in Los Angeles. He writes for a theology blog. He's authored many books on different theological topics, on family, on missions and Christian living. He's married to Kim. They have four children who will be delighted to see you after Father's Day. I'm sorry we stole you for Father's Day. Glad to have you. He currently serves as the senior pastor at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. We are, are very blessed to have him, very thankful for him, and thankful uh, for him dividing the truth rightly for us. So let's welcome Dr. Archer as he comes. Well, good morning. And thank you for having me here. It is an honor to be here. I, I do tell the people in my congregation in, in Mobile, Alabama, you know, that uh, that's not the Deep South. Um, Texas is the South, and Mobile may be the Deep South, but the deepest South is South Africa. And uh, you all have accents, by the way. I don't have an accent. <laughs> This is how we speak in the South. Well, it is a privilege to be here. You know, um, I knew Pastor Pennington as my boss uh, when I was at Grace Community Church. He was the, the boss. And you know, whenever the boss walks in the room, you get that kind of chill in your spine, like, am I doing everything okay? Is he here to check up on me? Um, and so uh, when he asked me and invited me to come and speak here, um, I thought, what, like a performance review? I mean, <laughs> I haven't had one of those from him in a while. Um, but. He was also a professor of mine and just a wonderful, gracious man and a mentor, so it's a privilege to be here today. Well, I came across a story in the news that I wanted to share with you because it's Father's Day. Uh, I thought it would be, it's quite a humorous story, but actually the more I, I read it and thought about it, the, the more I realized it's, it's really tragic and sad and at one point nearly brought me to tears thinking about it. It's about uh, a man, an Australian truck driver by the name of Jake Orr, and he decided that driving trucks across Australia had run its course, and he wanted a career change. He was entrepreneurial, so in May 2021, he posted an advertisement on Facebook um, offering his services as a stand-in father for those who don't have dads, and so he called his business Rent-A-Daddy. For the reasonable fee of $30 an hour, Jake will do school pickups and he'll take your children to their sports games. He will cheer them on as they play. He will uh, take them out for various outings, ice cream, uh, that type of thing. He'll teach them skills. The rental um, includes a maximum of two weeks per month. It includes sporting events, three fun activities of the child's choice and three hours a week of life skills training, like how to mow a lawn, how to fix a car, that kind of thing. Um, he will uh, show up for birthday parties, but that costs extra. So $30 an hour, but there's a 20% surcharge for birthday parties. There's a 20% surcharge for Sunday lunch with the family, for any time after 4 p.m., and family pictures cost extra as well. Isn't that the saddest thing you've heard in a while? That you would 
have somebody in your family photograph who's really a complete stranger who's been paid 30 bucks plus tip to stand there. I feel sad for Jake. He obviously loves children and doesn't have children of his own. I feel sorry for the moms who need to hire him in order to stand in as a father for the children. I feel sorry for the kids whose dads aren't in the home with them. It really is sad all the way around. It's tragic that these children have a hired stranger cheering them on at their basketball games. But the saddest part is that rent -a dad gets to check out at 4 p.m. Now, it's Father's Day. Imagine around 4 p.m. you just said, Honey, I'm done for the day. You take the kids for bath and bedtime. You only get two weeks a month of me. Now, he does that on purpose, of course. Jake does because he doesn't want the children to become too attached to him. But imagine your father just clocked out two weeks of the month. Parenting never ends. You know that. It's 24-7. Whenever the child has a nightmare, they wake up. If they get sick, they wake up. They come to you. It doesn't matter what the time of day is. It doesn't end when they leave. You know, you think they turn 18, go off to college, and you're done, but they have you on speed dial. Whenever they have any problem whatsoever, they're going to call you, and then they're going to have kids, and they're going to call you about that. And parenting never ends. And it's sad that there's people who don't have parents to pour into their lives, but I would submit to you that this is a problem that is found in the church as well. That there are spiritual latchkey kids among us. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ but have no one guiding them, mentoring them, teaching them, pouring into their lives. In ministry, when you make a disciple, just like a parent who makes a child, you have an ongoing responsibility 24-7 that never lets up. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the theme of what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. You know this epistle, it's, it's one of the few epistles that Paul wrote to not fix a problem, but just to encourage people. Um, there, there were no heresies that needed correcting. There were no issues in the church per se. He was, he's just encouraging them to excel still more. And so the first letter of Thessalonians in chapter 2 He's in a section at this point where he's reminding them of his ministry to them and calling them to continue that ministry among one another. And so in the previous passage, you see Paul's prerogative and his practice and his purpose, his prerogative, his right to earn a living as their pastor when he was there, but he gave up this right that was his practice so that he wouldn't be a hindrance and that the purpose of all of that was the gospel. The gospel was central. And so now he continues. I'm going to read from verse 7, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Well, just until there, this morning, we're going to be looking mainly at uh, verse 10 through 13, and we're going to see three ongoing steps in discipleship so that we help one another grow. So just like parenting is an ongoing commitment, when you make a disciple, when a person becomes a believer or they find themselves among you in church as a new convert, as a young believer, maybe even your own children, those people that you have brought to the Lord, it's not a once-off responsibility to share the gospel and then they get saved and then you're done. There's an ongoing responsibility where you impart not only the gospel of God, but your very own life as Paul said here. So we're gonna look at those three ongoing steps in discipleship so we help one another grow. The, the constant example, constant exhortation, and constant extolment. So those are the three things that we do. The constant example, exhortation, and extolment. So let's look at the first one. The first step in discipleship is a constant example, which you see in verse 10. He says, you, speaking to the Thessalonian church, are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you. How holy, righteous, blameless, how devout, how upright, how above reproach we were. Now, can you imagine standing in front of the church and saying, um, you are witness and God also of what my behavior is like among you that I am devout, pious, godly, that I am righteous, doing the right thing, upright, blameless, that, that people cannot point to my reputation and find a fault. I mean, it seems a little audacious, doesn't it? And yet what Paul is saying here is that when I came to you, I didn't just give you the gospel. I made a point of living in such a way that you could see the gospel fleshed out in my actions, that you could see the gospel in living color so that you could not only hear what to do, but you could see how it plays out in a person's life. Now, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 24.7 million children in the United States live in a home without a father. 24.7 million. That's exactly a third of the children in America don't have a father at home with them. Four in 10 school-aged kids don't live with their dads. And 72% of the people polled said that the number one most significant social problem facing America today is fatherlessness, 72%. Can you get 72% of people in America to agree on anything at this point? Well, they agree that the biggest problem in society is fatherlessness because fatherlessness leads to all sorts of other problems. It's, it, it helps explain the crime rate, um, relationship issues, marriages, uh, abuse issues, alcoholism, even gender issues today. So there's so much that can be tied back to having a strong father figure in your life. But I submit to you that there's a similar problem that exists in the church. 
Now, I've seen this uh, ministering in Africa where teams would come from Europe or, or from the United States or, or from wherever, and they come and they, they go to the, the rural, remote areas in Africa, and they preach the gospel, and maybe a handful of people proclaim their faith in Christ, and they get saved, and there's baptisms, and there's joy, and there's celebration, and they take photographs for the PowerPoint slide when they get back home for their supporters, and then they leave, and they never come back. And they've been there for two weeks and they made these spiritual orphans. And now you have baby believers, and that's fantastic, it's better than not being saved, but they don't have a pastor. They don't have elders and shepherds, they don't have counselors, they don't have people uh, explaining the word of God to them. Sometimes they don't even have a Bible. That's the exact opposite approach that Paul took. When he went, he moved in among the people. He labored among them. He worked among them. He imparted to them not only the gospel of God, but also our own life. That is discipleship. When Jesus said, go make disciples, that's what he was talking about. Not just preaching the gospel and abandoning the orphan, but to preach the gospel and then impart that to them through example. You can't do that being away from people. You need to be among them. No wonder, by the way, most of these places, uh, especially in Africa where uh, people are, are saved, they become Christians, they place their faith in Christ and then they get absolutely no teaching, it makes fertile soil for the false teachers to come in and plant their heresies. And they come and they fleece the flock for money and that's why the health, wealth and prosperity movement is rampant in Africa because of the well-meaning Christians who preached the gospel and left so that the wolves could come in and pick up the pieces. That's not discipleship. And when you share the gospel with a person, you now have a responsibility. You can't drop your kids off at the youth group and say they're getting Bible there, but not at home. I send my kid to a Christian school because I can afford it. That's gonna take care of their education. And then on the way home from church, you and your wife nitpick the sermon. Oh, he went long about that. Oh, he kept on this one issue. Man, that illustration was a little off color. I wouldn't have done it that way. I don't agree with this interpretation. I wish you'd used that, et cetera, et cetera. And what the kids in the back of the car are hearing is mom and dad slitting the throat of every sermon they hear on the way home. And now they've got no conviction. They've got no power of the Holy Spirit because mom and dad don't even believe it. Why should I believe it? And then throughout the week, they see mom and dad, they don't love each other the way the pastors showed them from scripture they should. They don't talk to each other the way the Bible says that they should. They don't parent us the way we heard they should. And those, parents, those children grow up learning not from what they hear in the pulpit, but what they see in their mother and father imparting it to them at home. So Paul viewed his converts as spiritual children that he needed to pour into. And that's how we need to view one another, people that we need to pour into. He called his converts in um, 1 Corinthians 4, 14, my beloved children. He called the Corinthians my beloved children. He said, uh, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'm the one that brought the gospel to you. I became your father. And then he also says, this is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. 
So he calls the Corinthians his children. He calls Timothy his child. Titus 1.4, he calls Titus, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. In Philemon, verse 10, he says, my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Remember, he, he sends the slave Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter saying, I know he escaped from you, but since then he has become my child in my imprisonment. He became, a, they probably met in jail. Paul converted him to Christianity and he sends him back and he says, I'm not sending him back as a runaway slave who needs to be executed by his master. No, I'm sending him back as a fellow believer now. And I expect you to forgive him and to restore with him. And what I love about it is Onesimus' name in Greek, it means useful. And Paul actually makes that pun in, in Philemon, doesn't he? He says, he once was useless to you, but now he's useful on that pun on his name. Like he was a useless slave. He couldn't even do that right. He ran away. Well, guess what? He's a believer now. He's useful for the kingdom. I want you to forgive him because he's my child. And so this is how Paul viewed these people as his children. Earlier, he told the Thessalonians in verse 7 of this chapter, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's what he was like, like a, like a mom. If you ever, you know, one of the cool parts about being a pastor is you get to do the hospital visit, you know, you get to show up when the baby's born. Have you seen the baby? You know, and then you're there and you bring your balloons or whatever, and there's this mom with this precious kid, and it's just such a tender moment, and it's, there's always so much joy. And Paul says, that's what I'm like with my disciples, with my converts. And the thing about being a parent is that your children will mimic your example. That's why you're, you're, you're imparting to your kids, you're imparting to other believers, needs to be constant example. You, you, you can't let your guard down. I want you to f f finish the cliche with me. An apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, this kid, he's a chip of the old block. Like father, like? Yeah, we all know it. They're cliches for a reason because we understand that children are like their parents. They have the same mannerisms sometimes and the same interests and, and the same foibles and they will, they will follow you. They will mimic you. It's just natural. In fact, one of, the most, one of the most terrifying pieces of parenting advice I ever received was when someone said to me, your child will not drive like you tell them to. Your child will drive like you do. <laughs> My oldest is now 15, and I'm constantly driving with him and saying, listen, don't do that when you drive. <laughs> do what I say, not as I do. But there's an understanding that your kids are just going to, by osmosis, pick this up from being around you. Therefore, you need to live your life as a constant example. That's how you need to be around them, and that's how you need to be around other believers. Luke 6.40 Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Imagine everyone in this church was like you. And you told people, I want you to be like me. Uh, I want you to spend your money the way I spend my money. Um, I want you to parent your children the way I parent my children. I want you to speak to your wife the way I speak to my wife. I want you to have a quiet time with the Lord as sincere and fervently and as regularly as I do. I want you to sing to the Lord with the sincerity and focus that I do. I mean, can you imagine saying that? Well, just imagine the whole church 
had your level of commitment to the Lord. That's what Paul says. That's what we do with one another. That's how you make disciples. We're watching one another. There's always people at a lower level in that they're newer believers than you. They're in a stage in life below you. You're a parent of teenagers. There's someone with a parent of toddlers looking at how you parent your teenagers. Maybe you're a parent with grown kids out of the house. There's parents with teenagers looking up at you. There's, there's always someone looking up at you, whatever you're doing, in business, in life, in family, and they're, they're watching you. You need to be an example. So do you live your life in such a way that younger Christians could model themselves on you? This was really driven home to me. I was a um, a new believer. I got saved in college. Uh, there was this girl that I was interested in. I'd known her from high school and she invited me to this Bible study because I was an unbeliever. I didn't know that. And so she said, well, I'm not going to date you, but you can come to our Bible study. And so I came and then she didn't show up. Um, <laughs> but there was a missionary that had been sent there from Grace Community Church and he was preaching the gospel. And I got saved. And that, that's how I became a believer and I would go to this Bible study without her and, and, and grow in the Lord in that way. And she was always more mature than me as a believer because she had sat under that kind of preaching for many more years. Well, around about that time, um, after I'd become a believer, we were invited back to our high school. They were doing this thing where they were raising funds and they did uh, 10 years of musicals. And they got the alumni who were in the musicals each year to come back and do like one scene and reprise their role. And so I was invited back because I was Duty from Greece. <laughs> Duty's the guy that plays the guitar. And I wanted that role not because I could play the guitar, but because they let us grow our hair long for the role. And so I had this long greasy hair when I was in high school just, just for that scene. And, and now it was a couple years later and now I had really long greasy hair and, um, and I was allowed to go back and, and be Duty. And, this friend of mine, she had been in one of the musicals called Bugsy Malone. I was just an extra in that musical, but she had one of the, one of the lead roles um, in Bugsy Malone, which is like a, it's set in the Prohibition, and it's like this gangster thing. It's a comedy musical, and we would, you know, kill people by putting um, uh, shaving cream pies in their face. It was supposed to be funny, and um, it was funny. And then... Um, <laughs> She was one of Tallulah's girls. Now, there's a, there's a song, My Name is Tallulah, and it's sung by the, the, the head prostitute, because this is in the time of the prohibition in the speakeasy. Tallulah, Tallulah's this prostitute, and she has these three friends, these three other girls, call girls, and they do a number, and they dance. And this friend of mine had been one of these girls. So she's now invited back for the same play that I'm in, but she, her scene is this prostitute scene. And she said no. She wouldn't come. And the director knew that we were friends and said, can you please talk into it? Everyone else is coming. Every other alumni who had a role is coming for their role. It would be so sad if she didn't reprise her role. And so I said to her, what's going on? Why won't you come? And she said, because I'm a Christian. And I don't want to dress like that and dance like that and sing those lyrics because I'm a believer. And I said to her, but you were a believer in high school. And you didn't have a problem with it then. And I expected her to say, well, I've grown in the Lord since then, but she didn't. She said, the difference is now I teach a Sunday school class and I have four young girls that I teach and they look up to me. And if they saw me dressed like that and dancing like that and singing like that, they would be very confused. And she wouldn't do it. I mean, what are you going to say to that? I'm not going to be like... 
I mean, I didn't want to be Satan in that example, so I was like, stop tempting her. I went back to the director and said, she's not coming. They got someone else to do the role. But that impacted me as a young believer, that here was a person who was making life decisions based entirely on what younger Christians would think about it. How do you make your life decisions? What you do, the kinds of movies you watch, the kinds of company you keep, you know, what, where, when, how much you drink, how you drive, how you dress, what jokes you make and laugh at. I mean, are you constantly living as if there's young believers trying to figure out how to be more like Jesus and I'm the one that they're looking at right now? That's how we should live our lives, constant examples. Well, secondly, we, we should also, if we're being faithful to raise up um, disciples is, to be, is through constant exhortation. This is our second point. Constant example. Secondly, constant exhortation in verse 12. Verse 12 says, so that you would, well, in, in verse 11 he says, uh, just as you know how, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is the other example. The first is, I'm, I was with you like a father, imparting my life to you, being a constant example to you so that you could be like me and imitate me as I imitate Christ. And secondly, here he's saying, and I was also teaching you. I was exhorting you and encouraging you and imploring you. Teaching is a duty. It's part of what we do with our disciples. Jake Orr, one of Jake Orr's services that he rendered was that he would teach the kids a life skill, how to fix a car, how to mow a lawn. He understands that part of being a dad, even a rent-a-dad, is that you have to teach. And so you need to be exhorting, urging. Um, I mean, I remember the teaching that came from my dad as a kid growing up, you know, when I got my license, he would, um, he pulled out the car into the driveway and he said, okay, change the tire. I said, but it's not flat, it's, it doesn't, it's not punctured. And he said, yes, but when it gets a puncture, I won't be there with you. So I wanna see you change the tire now in case you get stuck and then I can help you because in the future I won't be with you and then I'll know you can do it. And so that's super helpful because you know, at one point the bolt's a little, too tough and he says this is what you do you kind of stand on the wrench and you use your body weight and I was like okay that's a good tip and so he showed me how to do it then when he was with me so that I, I would know how to do it when I'm on my own that's how you raise disciples you have to teach them this is something I've learned this is what I've seen in other people this is what I've read in scripture this is what I've discovered from experience let me impart that to you I'm going to teach that to you and so he says, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and implored. The word exhort means to call someone to do something. Like when my boy runs cross country, I'm, I'm there with all the other parents and as he's running past, I'm like, run, run. Well, he's running. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm just exhorting him. Keep doing it. Take that kid in front of you. Don't let him beat you. And then that kid's parents are like, hey, you know, you, but what are you doing? You're not actually, you're just, you're just urging them on. And, and sometimes you need to do that. You need to call people to live the Christian life. Do the right thing. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Submit to your husband. You need to be giving faithfully to the church. You need to be faithful in your attendance. Come on, charge them. 
exhort them. The word encourage is something else that he did. It's a word that means to say friendly things to people that are helpful. So this is after the race where you say, good job, buddy. You did your best. You gave it your all. You ran well. So there's a time when you just want to build someone up. You just want to encourage them. And then the word implore or plead, or the ESV has it as charge. It's a more official term. It's the word diamarturomai, where we get the word martyr from. The, the root comes from there. It, means to, to, it comes from the idea of witnessing, of saying something true. So you're imploring this person. You're, you're, you're calling them, saying, you know, you have a job to do. You, you have a, a witness here. It's like in the race saying, Son, run with all your heart because your team could win state. Don't let them down. So there's all these different ways that you're, you're just urging the person, you're encouraging the person, you're, you're pleading with them, you're imploring, you're reasoning with them. That, and it's constant. That's your role. If you don't have someone in your life that you're doing this with, you're not being a very good discipler. People don't learn just by osmosis. Yes, it's part of it. You have to be an example, but you also have to actually teach them something. So what Paul is calling them to do here and encouraging them and then charging them, imploring them to do, well, he says, verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and implored you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his kingdom. So God calls you. You're not walking in such a way that you get saved. That's not how that works. We understand that, right? God saves you, and you are justified and declared righteous, and now the rest of your life is a, manner, a matter of walking in a manner worthy of that declaration. The, the pastor that I got saved under, he, he would often say it this way, Paul is calling you to become who you are. Become who you are. You are already righteous. In Christ. You are already forgiven, perfect from a legal standpoint. But then you look at your life and you're like, I, I need to actually behave that way now. Walk in a manner worthy. And so this is what we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring people to do, this constant calling them to, to act according to the name that they bear. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You call yourself a Christian, act like a Christian. This will come up in counseling sometimes where a young couple will come to me and they want me to do their wedding. And then I ask them some questions and yes, we're believers and yes, we grew up in the church, that's why we want a Christian wedding. But then I ask them more questions and it turns out, well, they're living together. And so I'll say, well, I thought you said you were a Christian. Now I'll take them to the scriptures and I'll show them about sexual purity and sexual immorality, and, and, and then they'll, they'll say, well, 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 now we can't move out, we can't afford to. That's why we moved in, to save money. And so I say, okay, well, you've got three choices. You can either repent of the sin, move out and pursue purity as we move towards marriage, that's the one I recommend, or I can marry you right now. Like, if you, if you cannot afford to even go one night apart, we can get married. You can get married right now. I actually had a couple once take me up on that. We, we married them. That was a Thursday. We married them that Sunday at church. Um, I don't recommend that, though. Um, 
but, but you know, it makes for a good little speech. Um, so one, <laughs> repent of your sin, move out, and pursue holiness, and we'll pursue marriage. Two, get married right now. Or three, do whatever you want, but stop calling yourself a Christian. Because you can live together all you want if you're not calling yourself a Christian. Because the, the Bible has different standards. And we're not in the world's standards. We're in Christ's standard. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm calling you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. And if you don't want to live in a manner worthy of your calling, then maybe you're not called. And we need to call you something else. I mean, I say it in a friendly way, you know. But, <laughs> but I have had people storm out, offended, and I can't believe you say I'm not a Christian. I actually had one, this is a side for free, I didn't give this to the first service. This one young man and, and his girlfriend were so offended, they went to the, the guy's boss who was in our church, and he said, I, can't, I went to that pastor like you said, and he said, we're not even believers. He said that the Bible said so because of our sexual immorality. And his boss, who was in our church, said, yeah, he's right. And the guy was like, really? And so he got to preach the gospel team even more clearly. Apparently, it didn't stick with me. And then um, the guy got saved, and they joined our church, and, and they repented, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful story because people, some people just think that they're Christians. And so part of being a disciple, discipler is to show your disciples when they're not acting like Christians so that they can realize that they're not, or if they are, that you call them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So when a person becomes a believer, their life will get challenging. Satan will gun for them and tempt them. Former friends will entice them back into previous lifestyles. Their family may mock them and ostracize them. And you need to be there to encourage them and walk with them. And you might be thinking at this point, this is a huge responsibility. I mean, yeah, you're going to be their life coach. You're going to be their cheerleader. You're going to be their drill sergeant, if that's what is needed. Paul says later on, you, you admonish the unruly, and you encourage the faint-hearted, and you help the weak. And you're thinking, man, this is just so much to do. It, it's all on me? No, that brings us to our third point, constant extolment. So we have constant example. That's your first responsibility to your disciples. A constant exhortation, actually be teaching them and calling them to a worthy standard. That's your second responsibility to your disciples. And here's your third one. Constant extolment. Now, obviously, I just use that because it has an EX. Um, example, exhortation, extolment. But it means to, to praise God and, and to focus on God and to thank God and to lift God's name up. And that is a, a constant duty. And you see it in verse 13. Uh, we also thank God. And for, he says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So spiritual maturity doesn't come from the disciple, and spiritual maturity doesn't come from the discipler. Spiritual maturity comes from God through his Holy Spirit. And in this verse, Paul says that the means the Holy Spirit is going to use is his word. It's the word of God that is at work within you. So you need to constantly be pointing your disciple to Christ, not you. So this is how cults are born. Or even Christian churches that form around a, the, the cult of personality. 
They, they, they follow a certain posture. Remember, Paul said, don't do that. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. You know, like, is, is the body divided? No, 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 we're all of Christ. The disciple's main job is to accept and submit to what the word of God says. The discipler's main job is to constantly, constantly extol God. Raise Christ up in the mind of your disciple. Get the Holy Spirit involved through bringing them back to the word of God. Because it's God's authority and God's power that's going to change them, not you. Don't have them follow you. Now, I know you say, but he just, he just told us that we have to be a constant example because people are going to follow us. Yes, they're, they're going to follow you. But in that, remember what Paul said, imitate me as I, what? Imitate Christ. So that's what you need to do. Yes, follow me, but only in the way that I'm following Christ and I'm pointing you towards him at all times. So, so there's this constant extolment of Christ and his work. And so you don't get any credit for a person's holiness then. God gets the credit. You know, people, if, a, if there's a particularly good karate student, then you're like, well, who was his sensei? Because obviously if he became that good and I send my kid there, then my kid will become that good. They're, who's the sensei? Well, our sensei is Jesus, <laughs> not us. You don't want the person to be like you. You want the person to be like Christ. So you don't get any credit for it. God does. And it also avoids, it not only avoids you forming a personality cult around the pastor, it avoids the pastor uh, having a big ego about how everyone wants to be like him and set trends. And, and we understand that, that leaders... You know, people want to put people on, uh, put their leaders on a pedestal. That happens just, it's hardwired in us because we're, we're created by God to worship. And so when we're not worshiping rightly, we're worshiping wrongly. But we are always worshiping. So we're always putting someone on a pedestal. You always want to make someone your hero. You know, in the old days, it, it, used, to, it used to be people that actually did something. Now we have just celebrities who are famous for being famous. You know, you, used to, you ask a kid in the 70s, you know, who you want to be like? I want to be like Neil Armstrong. You know, I want to go walk on the moon, explore the universe. Somebody who did something, like a, a real hero. Now it's like, who do you want to be like? I want to be like Kim Kardashian. It's like, I don't, what does she even do? What has she done? And no offense if she's watching this or anything, but I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I doubt that she's like trying to take credit for being a real hero. But, but we do that. We just, we just want to follow sports stars because they can get this ball into the net like really quickly many times. Like, ooh. <laughs> and so we follow them and we wear their, their name on our jersey and we, we just want to worship. And, and Paul says, I like what happened with us because even though I was being an example and I was teaching you, I thank God constantly, verse 13, that when you received this word, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, but you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, instruction, and training in righteousness, right? So the, the word is breathed out by God, and that's what works. It's when you're not following me, but you're following God. And so... Matthew 23, 9, Jesus said, call no man your father on earth. 
for you have one Father who's in heaven. Now, I know that's really ironic to be preaching on Father's Day. Jesus says, don't call any man father. Now, what he doesn't mean is that you're not allowed to call your dad, dad. So don't call your dad today to say, happy Father's Day and say, uh, I hope you're having a happy day, Bob Sr. <laughs> Pastor said I couldn't call you dad. No, you can call your dad dad. That's okay. Um, what he means here is in this context in Matthew 23 and the Pharisees and that, that don't look to human beings as your spiritual progenitor the one that brought you to life spiritually. They're not your father. Don't call them your father. So that's one of the reasons why you, you can refer to me or Pastor Tom as pastor, but not father. You know, sometimes if you meet Catholic friends or whatever, and they hear that I, I mean, I, I was saved out of Catholicism, so I have Catholic friends, and they hear that I'm a, a pastor, so they call me, they're like, what do I call you, Father Clint? I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> You can just call me Clint. Uh, if you've got to call me something, call me pastor, but not father. Why? Because the Bible says to call no man father. Because we're, we're not your father. Now, you're saying, but this is confusing because Paul just said that Timothy is my, my son and I'm his spiritual father. Yes, but you've got, you've got to understand that there's, there's something about bringing the gospel to a person. There's something else about taking credit for that person's salvation. Don't do that. And don't give credit to a person for your salvation ever. And so I love that Paul says here, it's the word of God which is at work within you. Doesn't that remind you of another phrase in the New Testament? The word of God that's at work within you. It's, not, it's as if the word of God is active on its own. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active. It's not like any other book. You know, I've read self-help books. I read uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People when I was in college and all my assignments were late and somebody said, you should read this book. And it helps with time management and th there's, there's stuff in there that I still do. I, I read it many times, but then I got saved and read the scripture and it just it's like sucks you in and you can't get it out of your mind. And now you start wanting to be on time not because that's acceptable in society, but because you don't want to be inconsiderate, you want to be loving, you want to be productive for the kingdom. Your, your motives change, your reason for living changes, your way of thinking changes. The, the Bible shapes your worldview. You now have opinions that you might not have had before. Your, your opinions start changing. Maybe you vote differently. Uh, maybe it makes you smarter. It, it gives you understanding about creation and science and society. It, it helps you discern truth from error. It helps you make better decisions. As the psalmist says in Psalm 19, it revives the soul. It, it like brings you out of your depression. It, it makes wise the simple. It gives you an understanding about things that, that educated people today are like floundering over. Can you define a woman? I'm not a biologist. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. I'm not a biologist either. Let me just mention that up front. 
But I have a Bible. So I can define a woman. Meet me afterwards and I'll tell you. <laughs> Because I have the Bible. And you know what else? My eight-year-old can define what a woman is. Because she has the Bible. So this makes wise the simple and enlightens the eyes. It gives you discernment and you should desire the word of God more than, than the drippings of the honeycomb. Why? Because it's, it's active. It's at work in you. You know, one of the ways I know that I'm saved, and when, when you're a new believer and you hear convicting sermons all the time, Sometimes you wonder, like, am I even saved? Like, I don't know this stuff. I'm not doing this stuff. My life's a mess. But the way I knew I was saved is when I would travel. I, I travel a lot. I still do travel a lot. I love traveling. And I would travel overseas, and I'd be all by myself in a foreign land. No one from my church. No one even that speaks the language. And I'd be in these youth hostels. And there'd be other young people there, people wanting to get drunk, people getting, doing drugs, guys and girls sleeping together casually, not even knowing each other's name. All that stuff was going on around me. And I was a brand new believer. But my conscience was steeped in the word of God immediately. Why? Because my pastor preached the word. And he had me read the Bible. And the, the Bible was, it's like the word of God was in me. And so the way I knew I was saved is that even when I was all alone with no accountability and, and from a human point of view, no way of getting caught, I still wanted to do the right thing because I love Jesus and he could see and I knew what the right thing was because of the Bible. So the word of God is active in you and it's active in your disciples and you need to realize you can't disciple someone by making legalistic rules for them because they can get around those. You can't disciple people by forcing them to do the right thing. Their heart needs to change. I used to watch tons and tons of movies when I was a kid, uh, when I was in college especially, I was a drama and film student as well. And somebody once told me, well you can't watch these movies because they're R-rated movies, there's violence and there's swearing and there's sex scenes in them. And I was like, what, now I can't watch those movies? What other rules are there? There's all these rules, there's all these rules. And uh, I would sneak out and I'd watch the movies anyway because I worked in a mall until late. I'd go to like the 11 p.m. show and no one ever knew. And slowly over time, the movies themselves started offending me. And I started walking out of movies, which is something I'd never done before because the swearing was so bad or the, the sex scenes were just, uh, I, I couldn't stomach it anymore and no one had to tell me to do that. What changed? The word of God was active in me. So that's what you need to do with your disciple. Bring them back to the Bible. Bring them back to the Bible. Pray with them. Pray for them. Get them back in the word. Show them the scriptures. Don't make rules for them. Don't make a lifestyle for them that they have to cling to. Just show them the word of God and God will change them and make them more like Christ through the spirit. Okay, application for you. Go find a disciple and find a discipler. This is what this looks like. Find somebody in the faith who's newer to Christianity than you. And, and this doesn't have to be a formal thing. Like you don't have to sign up for the next six years every week. I'm going to call you at 5 a.m., read this book, write a report. 
don't go to the people as they're getting donuts and coffee afterwards and say, leave these donuts, follow me. <laughs> I mean, you can do that, that's one way, but it can be very organic. It can just be you decide to spend more time with a person, you become friends with them, you build a relationship, you send them encouraged verses, encouraging verses from scripture, and slowly you start to impart your life as you're an example to them. And you exhort them and you encourage them. You, you see what they're doing right in their life and you say good things about that. You see what they're doing wrong in their life and you offer to help with that and keep bringing them back to the word of God. Constant example, constant exhortation, constant extolment. And then be discipled. So find someone one stage or two stages higher than you in, in whatever the Christian walk is. When I was a new pastor, I would take out um, uh, older folk in our church. You know, the, the, all the wisdom, the, the wisest people in the world are those that have walked with the Lord for a long time. You can spot them. They've got gray hair. That's what the Bible says, right? The glory of a young man is his strength. He's good for something. He can pick up weights. Woohoo! If you need something moved, you call the young guy. If you, but the glory of the gray-haired is his wisdom. And so I would ask them three things. Tell me, I would take them out for, for uh, coffee or tea or prune juice or whatever they wanted. And, um, <laughs> and I would buy it for them and I would say, tell me something about faith, something about family, and something about finances. And then I would just jot them down, a little moleskin journal. Tell me something about what you've learned about the faith. And they might say, there's this one author that really spoke to me a lot. I just made a habit of reading the scripture every morning, first thing when I woke up, but whatever it is, and I would jot those down. And family, oh, these are the mistakes I made with my kids. This is the mistake I made with my husband or with my wife. This is what I regret. Or this is what works. This is the key to our marriage. Um, and then ask them about finances because, man, they've, they've made mistakes and they've done well and they've, they know more than you. And then just jot those down or think of whatever questions you want. So constant example, constant exhortation and constant extolment. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, um, I have got excellent news for you. You do not need to be a spiritual latchkey kid. You don't have to be an orphan. There is a father who loves the world and gave his son so that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved today. You can be cleansed of all of your sins, forgiven of everything you've done, and you might be thinking, yeah, you don't know what I've done. If the people in this room knew what I've done, it doesn't matter, Jesus knows. And he paid for it on the cross. And so when God sees you, he sees the approval and the love and the affection that he has for Jesus Christ because he makes that available to all of those who trust in him alone. And all of your sin and your filth and your guilt and all the things that you're ashamed of, God already saw that and he, he, he purged it, he burnt it, he, he, he dealt with it on Calvary. And it's as moved as, as far as the east is from the west if you believe in Jesus. And if you place your faith in him, you, you're adopted into the family you are given all the full rights and privileges of adoption, including an eternal inheritance. And you have a father. You have a, a father who loves you because of what Jesus did. Now, if you want to hear more about adoption and what our adoption is based on, come back tonight and we'll talk about Mephibosheth and God's faithfulness to us. Let's pray.